0: Recording live at Studio 710 in beautiful downtown Vancouver, you're listening to License to Chill with your host, Bert Hick of Rising Tide Consultants. On today's show, Bert sits down with Ian Tosteson, the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. He previously served as director of the David Foster Foundation, a charitable organization dedicated to helping support families with children in need of life-saving transplants. And in recent years, he's been a leading voice in the debate for Rideshare, which would finally bring services like Uber and Lyft to Vancouver. We now go to Bert in conversation. Good afternoon. My name is Bert Hick. Welcome to License to Chill. Our guest this afternoon is Ian Tossenson, who's president and CEO of the BC Restaurant Food Services Association. And we're going to have a conversation with Ian with respect to the restaurant industry, rideshare, which he's become a very strong advocate for, as well as issues around cannabis and the hospitality industry. And we also want to touch on the hospitality, um, the the, uh, Restaurant Association Hall of Fame dinner that's coming up. Uh, This fall, where they induct people from the restaurant industry, uh, hospitality industry, into the Hall of Fame for their contribution to the industry. So, Ian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bert. Pleasure to be here. And let's start off with Rideshare. How does the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant Food Service Association get involved being such a strong advocate for Rideshare? How did that come about? You just wake up one morning, decide you want to do this.
1: What happened was the um, the issue of ride share is so critically important to our industry from two actually two angles: both from a safety patron get them to the restaurant and back to their homes, but also, uh, and we're going to talk about the labor shortage in a bit. But it's critically important for moving labor. And we found that in, in markets that does ha- that does have ride sharing that your your employees and workers can live further away from the businesses. You've got a larger pool of people to uh, to work in the restaurant. So about a year and a half ago, a coalition was formed called RideshareNow.com uh, in British Columbia. And um, very quickly, we had about 40 businesses that signed up to it, all the ones from like Restaurant Association, Board of Trade. We had the BC Epileptic Society, Mothers Against Drinking and Driving, Uh, Canadian Institute for the Blind. So you could see that the wide spectrum of people that are interested in this topic is immense. They're all customers of restaurants in various ways. So we had a press conference and we were all standing there and the cameras were there and no one stood up to talk. They said, well, someone's got to say something. So I thought, oh, so I just took that role, comfortable with that role. And uh, de facto, I became the spokesperson for the issue in British Columbia. So it's been about a year and a half. It's been... Uh, a really intense issue has been, uh, it's full of politics, has been fascinating, but the good news is, is that sooner than later now, we will have
0: ride-sharing in Metro Vancouver. I think it's terrific. I'm a big fan of ride-share. Uh, from my end in the hospitality industry, we need it. You have to wait forever for a taxi. People need to get, know that they can not drink and drive, that they don't have to drive to get home. They can have a, an, uh, stay and have a glass of wine in a restaurant and take uh, Uber home. When, how do you see this rolling out then? As I understand it, the government is now going to allow the licensing of uh, of rideshare companies and uh, the pre- municipalities are bringing into place their own policies. When will I be able to go on my app and order an Uber?
1: I think probably early as Halloween. Really? Lyft is a competitor of Uber and they've announced that they are coming to British Columbia. Uber haven't said they haven't are, are haven't or have not come yet. And the, re- the real reason is, is that um, there's all this regulation. And the big one that's causing a concern is the fact the government has mandated that people get a Class 4 commercial driver's license versus having a Class 5 license. And that automatically takes a lot of people out of the pool, the potential pool, to become drivers for ride sharing. Because you need thousands of people to populate the system to make it work. Nowhere else in North America does anybody have a Class 4 requirement, with the exception of Alberta, that was an NDP government that brought that in, and the new government's going to take it out. So we're, we're, we we've got class four. Um, it was an intentional move by the government to slow down the process to help the taxi industry, and that's the politics of this whole uh, uh, industry in, in British Columbia. But uh, we feel there's enough population base in ma- Metro Vancouver to be able to handle that. But you know, Bert. Some of this regulation that um, the government's been throwing at this whole issue, and both the Liberals and the NDP, it'd be like trying to block people from watching Netflix to bring back Blockbuster. That's kind of what we're doing here. We're trying to protect an industry that is old technology and is very finite in its ability to deliver customer service, that being a tax industry, and at the expense of not bringing new technology. So... Uh, what we'll find is in time that we, we will see both Lyft and Uber in this market and we will see a successful taxi industry, but politics within the taxi industry are fascinating too because there's two associations. There's the Vancouver Taxi Association and the BC Taxi Association, and they're grumbling about all this regulation, but they can't agree either one of them as to what it should be. So in the meantime, um, the, the, you know, we've got some pretty good regulation for, ta- for ride sharing. It means there's no boundaries, so they can... Drive from here, from literally from Hope to Whistler. There's no cap on drivers. And the fee on the the initial fee will be the same minimum fee that a taxi charges. So the only one that's real troublesome continues to be the Class 4 license.
0: Yeah. And on that point, it's my observations from my travels in the United States whenever I use Uber down there, that most people do it on a part-time basis. They're doing it to supplement an income because they need the money to go support a family member that might be at university to support a family member or relative that has a health care issue, uh, seniors, parents, and they're doing it just to supplement their income and they only do it part time. And they're not doing it full time. Is that what you expect up here? Yeah. So um, the
1: typical uh, driver in the States drives uh, less than 18 hours a week and um, you'll see mothers, Students, retired people, all just making extra money. So these aren't, you know, people will grumble about rideshare drivers. They're not full time professions. They're designed to make some extra income. Interesting, in Alberta, which I mentioned has a class four designation, of all the drivers in Alberta, there's only 100 women that drive for Uber in all of Alberta because the class fours block them. And uh, what you typically see from a Uh, an industry point of view in the States is you'll see women are about 38 to 40% of the overall drivers for ride sharing in the States. It's one of the arguments that we're advancing with the government is that that policy might be uh, a little bit discriminatory for certain groups. Uh, Interesting. You could get your car, take your neighbor's kids, drive them all over the place. You could go volunteer in the afternoon, drive some seniors around to whatever their activities are, go home, have dinner, decide to go ride, ride sharing, and now you need a Class 4 license, and it doesn't make any sense. So um, we'll see.
0: Yeah, and I uh, the most memorable rideshare trip I took in L.A. was a driver was a retired LAPD police officer. She got into driving this because she's trying to raise extra money to support her parents who are uh, on in years and they have health care issues. And she had some notoriety because she, as an LAPD police officer, she drove the lead LAPD police car that was following OJ Simpson down the San Diego freeway years ago. <laughs> really? It was covered on CNN and fascinating person. Uh, but I just find that it's interesting that the way they've set this up is a barrier for women into the industry because of, of their licensing requirement. And, uh, but yet they only drive part-time and yet, the system, as I understand it, on ride sharing is that they get a, all the drivers on, through ride share get a report every week as terms of how many miles or hours they drove, and so it's easy to track if somebody's doing part time or full time driving. And I can see it if you're a full time driver, like a taxi cab driver, perhaps having having a higher litmus test. But if you're just doing a part time, as you just said, you're driving people around, whatever but yet in the evening you're going to drive for a couple of hours. Why? It's just, oh, it's a, it's a barrier to entry. One of the things we advanced to the minister um,
1: is a classified plus. So we said, similar to what we do in the hospitality industry, as you know, Bert, um, when we do serving it right, it's an online, uh, you have to pass the online, uh, online course. We said, let's just add a few other elements to a class five. So we can up the safety thing here. And uh, maybe it's an online course, a certification and some awareness training on, on uh, road science and stuff. We can do that. But essentially the class four, I'm actually taking it right now just to sort of prove the point here. You learn how to drive, a, you learn about buses, you learn about commercial vehicles, you learn about big tires, you learn a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't have a lot of application to a passenger car. And so you've got to uh, study the manual, pass a, a learner's license, and then you've got to book a road test. And in most cases, about 53% of the people fail either one of those things. So they've got to keep going at it. They do recommend at ICBC so you take a commercial driving course to pass the course, and that's 500 bucks. So you can see right now, it could be a, about $1,000 in about two or three months of your time to do this. What will happen initially is we'll see a lot of people that have commercial uh, class 4 licenses, i.e. the taxi industry. You'll see a lot of those people migrate over to become rideshare drivers at the, at the expense of the taxi industry, or who already has a labor shortage. So, you know, it's just careful what you hope for in these things, is that you try to do one thing, and, of course, it has another reaction, adversely the other way.
0: Now, is the threat of ride-sharing coming in uh, up the game or the competition for taxicab industry? Are they improving themselves in the province of British Columbia? They've had eight years to improve themselves, and I don't see any indication that they really have. Um, no, I, I agree with you. When I get out of the YVR and I take a taxi from the airport, it hasn't really improved that much at all. Well, no, there's 2,400 taxi licenses approximately
1: in Metro Vancouver, and they're owned by 104 owners. So 104 people own those licenses. And, uh, and this is where the politics are, and most of the owners are vested in, uh, in Surrey. And most of the industry is a South Asian industry, which is fine, but there's a very tight industry, so they put a lot of pressure on the government, and they're really mad now. And they basically told the government, and if you play this one wrong, you can't maybe expect our support in the next election. And they picked up, what, two or three extra seats in Surrey. So it's a very sensitive issue. And I, and I get the Premier's sensitivity on that one. I mean, you can't walk off a cliff on this one. That's why I actually will applaud this government for getting it done. The Liberals didn't get it done. And the NDP actually brought it in. So good for them. And uh, I think as we move forward... We'll make the adjustments. I think they'll get more comfortable with the data once you start seeing data where the cars are, the you know the drivers, all that kind of stuff. I think we'll see positive change, as
0: but it's going to take time. Yeah, I know. I, I agree with you with respect to that. And the other part we find is now with the legalization of cannabis. Plus, we've always had the issue of liquor. People want to know that they can get home safe, and they don't want to be in a restaurant downtown Vancouver or in an event, and they have to wait forever for get a taxi. They want to ride.
1: Well, you know, the example is, uh, and and that's why I really became passionate about this issue, because living on the North Shore, as you do as well, um, you don't actually think about going downtown for dinner on the weekends, because if you're lucky to get a cab, the chances of you getting a cab back are impossible. So I was reading something and someone said, you know, living in Seattle, someone will phone you up and say, you want to go for dinner? And you say, yes. What time? Eight o'clock. Thank you very much. Here? You want to go for dinner? 8 o'clock, well, are you driving? Are you going to get there? Is it a bus, a taxi? You go on and
0: on. And you get to a point, you say, you know what? It's not worth it. Well, uh, we're doing that this weekend. Uh, it's Friday night. We're having dinner where? West Vancouver, uh, just down the street at our local restaurant. Yeah, we'd prefer to come downtown to Joe Forte's or one of these other restaurants, but we're not going to cross the bridge, uh, either coming down or going back up. And secondly, tomorrow night's another dinner in West Van. So I just find that... It it is a barrier for people being able to move around, and it's the other thing I find with ride-sharing is you you feel safe because the driver, you know who the driver is, you know what kind of vehicle they're going to drive, you know their name, they pull up, everything's done electronically, you get in the car, it's a clean car, they usually have a bottle of water for you in the back seat, and they take you to wherever you want to go. And the pickup is easy peasy. So I, well, just, and, I, I just find it really yeah, terrific. You know,
1: it's, you know, you've been in policy all your life. Um, I find it really, uh, well, I'll be more diplomatic than that, but it frustrates me to see politicians and bureaucrats making rules about things. So I uh, was at City Hall, we were talking about ride sharing, and I asked all the councillors, how many people have actually experienced Uber or Lyft? Only about 30% of them had, but they all had an opinion. And it's the same, you know, the same thing with the minister. The minister has never taken a ride share that I'm aware of. And so when she starts talking about safety in class four, we said, yeah, but are you aware what happens in that transaction? These companies require a criminal check. They require a driver's abstract. They require a car that's, I think, no later than 10 years or five years old and the safety checks. And they're really diligent about that. So you can't say that they're unsafe. They're in the business of being safe. When you order it, you see who your driver is, what the license plate number is, what that driver's rating is before he even gets there, how much the fare is going to be. And then he sees Bert Hick, and he'll see your rating and what your history is. And so the transaction is so secure and it's so safe because if something goes wrong, now they have these facilities where you can literally... um, uh, hit an emergency on your, on your app and say I'm in trouble and they'll geolocate you everywhere. So it is really, really safe. You don't get in taxis. That's not what's
0: happening in taxis. No, I totally agree with you. Uh, and uh, if my experience, again, in the States with it is if you're outside of a hotel or a major uh, tourist attraction like the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. or someplace, there's usually a row of taxis. So you just jump in a taxi and you can go that way. But if you're in a situation where you need a specific ride to go someplace, Uber is terrific. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can call. And, and if so I, to me, there's a market here for both to yep. coexist. We just got to get to that point. And I agree with you that, quite frankly, we're a long time getting here. But I applaud the government for this government for at least getting there. Slowly but surely. Now, are the municipalities going to wade in here and put in certain barriers or prohibitions, or is that going to be a difficult so one? I've heard about congestion now. tax.
1: Oh, now they all jump in about congestion and lighting their hair on fire, and there's going to be too many cars. In fact, you know, it really depends on the market you're in. So the facts are that if you have a good transportation system like we have here, then rideshare is going to be what they call first mile, last mile. So how do you get to your mode of public transportation? And at the end of that, how do you get home? So at 2 o'clock in the morning or 1 o'clock in the morning, you can take um, the SkyTrain. And when you get to the SkyTrain, before you get to the end, you can order up your rideshare and you can get home safely. So it doesn't necessarily add to the congestion. Um, And a lot of people, what they find out of Toronto, is a lot of people are forgoing their second car. They're actually using rideshare now to go to the office. They're using other uh, facilities within the the application where you can actually travel with somebody else. You can actually see in the app... there's Bert. he's going too. So there is some efficiencies in the system. But of course, the bureaucrats start screaming about congestion. They want to tax it before they have any facts. So we won't know for probably a year if there is congestion once they measure it because the companies are going to give that data to the government. Um, And now uh, they're now looking at zones in Vancouver, uh, pick up and drop off zones in certain parts of Vancouver. So where the cruise ship facility is, they've decided already that it's going to be too congested. They have rideshare cars picking up passengers, so they'll be about two blocks away. But they're really, at the same time, giving it to the taxi industry, because that's their domain down there. So um, we'll see. A congestion tax makes no sense. I mean, if you're going to tax it, tax everybody, not just rideshare people. And um, they've, they have had some other ideas about taxes, about curbside taxes and stuff. It's just a money grab. Instead of saying, let's just try it the way it is, let's make the adjustments, let's all move together, they just come up with with crazy ideas. So... And they're uncoordinated. I mean, I, it may be that every company has to get a different operating license in every municipality and et cetera, et cetera. I could be a business for you, Bert. You should get into that.
0: Yeah, well, I, it actually, I would find it fascinating because I'm a people person, and I would find it fascinating picking up people and finding what, what their life's about while I'm driving them from one point to another. Uh, get yeah. your class four. <laughs> Join me. <laughs> yeah,
1: we'll rent a bus.
0: <laughs> but I, uh, no, it's a, I think it's terrific, and I think it's a case where the people want it, but government is placing a lot of barriers in the way of people getting access to what they want to have. The population wants to have access to rideshare. They want it, we, and it's just bizarre. I was in the lounge at uh, the airport in Toronto last fall waiting for my ride back to Vancouver. And uh, I overheard a conversation from a couple of guys who on my plane. And one guy said the other guy, said, hey, Vancouver, it's great. It's beautiful weather, beautiful city, great restaurants, but you can't get a goddamn taxi. And I just found that that's interesting.
1: Well, imagine this. I could actually um, take the app. I could ask it to go pick up my mother-in-law, who's uh, medically challenged in, in getting elderly, and I could meet her. So the other day, I had to take her to the dentist. So I had to drive all the way down to almost, you know, Fraser and and uh, Southeast Marine Drive and then all the way back into town. I could have easily had a rideshare car, go pick her up and meet her there. There's all these conveniences that we've never even thought of uh, that are life changing for people. So it's going to be good. Yeah. No, it'll be good.
0: I, I think it'll be terrific for. <laughs> not just for the general population, but particularly for our industry, the liquor hospitality industry, the cannabis industry, who mm-hmm. want to have access to this. I want to switch gears a little bit here. Ian, you used to be in the wine industry, Cascadia Brands. Then you became president of the CEO. And did you start the Restaurant Hall of Fame?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... You're right. I was in the wine business. We, we owned a company called Cascadia Brands, which at various times, that's a story in its own, uh, was a public and private company. But we operated Kelowna Wines, the historic Kelowna Wines of the Sea, Granville Island Brewing. We had Brewing Owl. Uh, we had Potter Distilling. We also had an import company that was run by Ingle Grady. Most people would recognize that name. And um, we had that, we, we, that was, you know, I sort of started as a sales guy and ended up as president, CEO over 22 years. It was a, it was fascinating. It was during the time of um, BQA development in the in British Columbia. I chaired the wine institute. Blah blah blah. And then in 2007, uh, our we were a private company. Our major shareholder went broke, and so we sold the company, and um, Peller bought it. And so I just decided after all these years, I, uh, those years, I was going to take a bit of a break. And then suddenly I got kind of people lonely. And uh, someone phoned me said the Restaurant Association wants they're recruiting. I went, no, really? Those guys that what do they really do? They were kind of useless. We paid all this money to them each year, well, not that that much money, but I didn't really understand them anyway. I got caught up in the in the interview process, and they hired me. And I've been there almost a decade, I guess, and it's been absolutely fascinating. Like you know it's just because it, it, you you can make a difference i mean there's there's thirteen thousand restaurants in british columbia there's one hundred and seventy five thousand employees it's one of the fourth largest industries in all of b c It has a huge impact on people's lives and it has a huge amount of issues and being able to have and i 'll call it the privilege of being in a position to influence those things on their behalf with government or with consumers or be the the face and the voice of the industry um I really take really take it to heart. And I know many times you said to me, "Okay, you should move on and do something else." I do things on the outside, but I, I really feel that there were a couple of things that I really wanted to accomplish in the last um, in my in my mind. One was ride sharing. I guess that's off my list now. Not and quite. Not totally. <laughs> yeah, almost. So I'll get hang around for a bit. And the other one is, um, and it's one of the issues we can talk about is is some is some uh, pricing issues with respect to liquor in the industry and how it relates to, to um, the restaurant industry and the bar industry. So um, I kind of got caught up in it and um, I gained trust of the previous government and was able to gain the trust of this government, which I was quite concerned about. Um, but it was working well. We do a number of programs like eat, drink local, which, you know, promoting local food. Um, as I was telling you this morning, we we're rewriting a manual uh, that we invented a few years back called restaurant regulations made easy, uh, which is Compiling all the regulations and then putting it in plain English, so restaurants who have a lot of regulation that they have to comply with understand. So I think these things make a difference. Um, some people say that we're useless; we don't do anything. I get that, but I think we make a lot of difference in a lot of people's lives in terms of being handling issues like things like minimum wage and um, the, you know the the mayor of Vancouver trying to ban natural gas and all those kinds of things. You naturally need an organization in the middle of all that to try to to, to become the spokesperson, try
0: to settle out on behalf of the industry.
1: So it's quite fascinating.
0: So is your biggest issue, as I understand, with the restaurant industry, apart from the regulatory stuff that we deal with, is the biggest issue, labor shortage. Mm. So, You've got an initiative underway with respect to that.
1: So get this. Um, We estimate, we did a labor study uh, about a year and a half ago. And um, so in British Columbia... We are, for every three people that retire, we're only putting two people back in the workforce naturally. So we need immigration. In other words, um, the, the government will say, we need 900,000 workers in the next 10 years in British Columbia, and we can only fill 600,000 of those. So we have a gap of 300,000, which is immigration. In our industry, we estimate that the 13,000 restaurants, we, we estimate a labor shortage, get this, drumroll, 18 to 25,000 people short in our industry. And it's primarily in kitchens. And so, you know, that's not much. You think it's like maybe two people per restaurant. And um, the reason for that is really demographics. People said, oh, they don't pay enough. But actually, they do now. I mean, the whole thing has changed a lot because restaurants are paying a lot more to, uh, to both attract and retain labor. Um, it's one of demographics. And it's also one of the domestic people don't really want to be working in restaurants. There's a bit of an attitude thing there. So... Um, it's very serious, and we looked at this. Uh, I went to El Salvador a year ago with uh, uh, the honorary consul uh, of El Salvador. We actually had an agreement with El Salvador to source workers, but we found out that they were primarily unskilled workers. We have a program now which is we access uh, trained foreign uh, skilled workers from all around the world with one of the best immigration consultants in Canada and uh, it's half the time and half the price. So it takes about three to four months to bring in the right candidate, and it take, costs about $1,800 to do that, 1000 of which goes to the federal government. And um, we take it right from uh, the identification of the job that the restaurant needs um, to uh, giving the restaurant candidates that they can choose from. They set up Skype calls. Uh, they make the decision on hiring uh, the person who comes to Canada They're met at the airport. They're taken to Service Canada to get all their credentials. It gets really well done and very professional. Because when you're bringing somebody in to a new country, that's a big experience. These people are coming here. The difference is to become Canadian citizens. So this is not like I'm taking a temporary job. I'm going to be a ski lift operator and go back to Australia. These people are coming here with, with a minimum of five years' experience. They have a degree, and they are intending to become Canadian citizens. So it's a whole quality level. So they're here to perform. They're with that employer for a minimum of two years, most likely three, because they start to apply for their immigration status. And um, here, here's a funny story. We've placed about 300 workers since January in this program. And I could just do this like seven days a week. It was just, you know, um, we had a worker that was offered a job with a restaurant in Vancouver, and this worker was on a cruise ship. And on cruise ships, they work seven days a week, for six months in a row. So he, he got an offer, and he phoned up um, our immigration consultant, said, this is great, but he said, I, I thought this was a full-time job. He goes, well, it is a full-time job. He goes, well, it's, it's only 40 hours a week. It's only 38 hours a week. <laughs> and they go, well, that's what we work here. And this guy goes, well, I work you know, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Like, what am I going to do with all this time, and what am I going to do on the weekends? And he was really quite concerned. He just thought, this, you know, this is kind of silly. Like, why would I waste my time coming there to only work 40 hours? So what we find when they come into Canada, they work so hard. They are so keen to learn. They're so keen to integrate. And, uh, and they're some of the best workers. We're finding that rest, restaurants now are, are using uh, s- trained foreign workers as a sort of cornerstone for their kitchens because they know those workers are going to be there and they're dedicated. And it's, it, is, it is really helping. It's, it's really, really helping. And um, talk about great attitude. Um, you know they're so grateful to be in Canada. They're so grateful to have a job. They're so grateful at this to make fifteen dollars an hour. That's the starting wage. It's an average wage, and um, people say, "Well, that's what the, the issue here is: where they live." Well, what we figure, what we what we do is that we network them. So we will say, "Bert is coming in from, I don't know, uh, off a cruise ship." Bert's experience, he's going to go work in a restaurant downtown, and that goes out to all the people that are currently in here right now. And guess what? They'll absorb you. The, your other people that are in the marketplace that are, that are doing the same thing as you, they'll say, I have a room here. I know someone in there or someone in the staff. So it's easy to be absorbed. And they're not looking for their own apartment in a car and, you know, all the, the, the fixings of life. All the, the, in most cases, they're quite happy to share with three or four people because that's where they, they come from. Keep it simple. They're here to work. They're here to prove themselves. They're here to, to create an environment for their families. And so the, the program is, is really good, and I think it's good for Canada because we, we, in, throughout British Columbia, um, in all sectors, we have this massive labor shortage, and it's our biggest issue.
0: So this program is ongoing, and if people want to get more information about it, how do they do that? Mm. Thanks, Bert. Um, just contact the British Columbia Restaurant Association.
1: And uh, contact me, I mean, just phone and just talk to me personally, and I'll, I'll connect you with our, um, all the information is there, but I'll be happy to connect them with um, our immigration consultant.
0: I, I commend what you're doing there because uh, we do licensing of restaurants, hotels, and pubs, and one of the biggest issues, issues they have is labor shortages. We've had the case where restaurants are opening, but they're not sure they can open because right. of lack of labor. We have restaurant groups that have multiple units in the province, and they have to bring staff down from their other places for, to work in the place that they're opening just to get the place open. Yep. And uh, uh, it's a huge issue, and I only see it getting worse in the province because of the fact that we have an explosion of restaurants happening. And uh, uh, I was at a presentation yesterday by Tourism Vancouver And Destinations BC, where the growth in the tourism industry is only going up uh, by a significant amount in the next several years, which means more and more demand for people to serve the hospitality industry.
1: Well, you know, the other interesting thing, too, is that um, the way they build um, condos and apartments in Vancouver, kitchens, restaurants actually serve as the kitchen. I mean, if you're living in a little, little tiny apartment, 600 square feet, you go downstairs and you hang out in the restaurant you meet people, that's your kitchen. That's your place to entertain. So they're very, very important. And that's why um, when, when uh, Mayor Robertson and uh, ex-Mayor Robertson decided that natural gas, uh, turning off the natural gas in Vancouver would be a great move for the environment, um, that really upset a lot of people because, you know, 99% of the restaurants have some form of natural gas cooking. So
0: another one of those issues. No, I agree with you. That was uh, caught a lot of people by surprise by trying to eliminate natural gas because you have to have natural gas to cook in a restaurant or hospitals anywhere needs it. Switching gears a little bit, uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, other issues affecting the hospitality industry, other regulations, policies, uh, impediments. Uh, One of the people you're inducting into the Restaurant Hall of Fame is Bruce Fox. Mm. And years ago, Bruce used to be... uh, uh, president of uh, Boston Pizza. Mm-hmm. And Boston Pizza had this issue about TV monitors, and they could only have three TV monitors in a restaurant. And thank God the government eventually saw a, a way to allow more than three TV monitors that were 21 inches in screen size and move forward. What major issues is the restaurant industry facing in terms of either provincial or municipal regulation? Is there any issues at the city of Vancouver level you're concerned about?
1: Um, who dreams up this stuff, right?
0: I mean, we
1: have an issue right now in the city of vancouver, which is which is lurking. Um, they want to, for example, because they feel that most people need to understand the alcohol content of their drinks. They would like every restaurant in Vancouver to take their wine list, uh, all their their cocktails and and uh, all their beers, and every single drink and every wine list item would say, this is the serving size, and this is how much alcohol is in that. And so you would have to take about 1,200 restaurant licensed in Vancouver, and they'd have to reprint their menus. They'd have to redesign their menus and put all this information on. So we showed the city wine will vary from about 12 to 14%. So it's really a, a six-ounce glass is, a singles, is one, one serving. Uh, a, a, a vodka and soda is one serving, one ounce at 40 ounces. But the interesting one was craft beer, where you could have 4%, which would be one serving, or you could have an 8% craft beer. That's two servings. But there is an issue there. But you don't have to reprint every list in the whole city just to prove the issue. So we said, we will have a generic sheet, and if anybody wants to know what it is, we'll say, here's what wine is, here's what cocktails are, here's what beer is. Read it. And they go, oh, I don't know. You know, We, we think that people want more information. I don't know who these people are. But those are the kinds of issues that, you know, and we spent hours on that issue. And uh, I just spoke to them the, the, again the other day, and I think the issue is still out there. They, they actually think, because four people that work at City Hall, as they told me, had gone to an exercise class and went to Joey to have a glass of wine, they were really concerned about the alcohol content. And my answer was, why are you even drinking if you're so concerned about that? Like, be sensible. And they, uh, we see regulation like this all the time, where they're very insensitive and unaware as to the challenges of a business owner, which some of the issues they're faced with is regulation. They're regulated by the health department, the fire department, the liquor, or the uh, liquor, uh, work safe, labor. They have to file all their employment uh, criteria of the federal government. It goes on and on. And um, they've got to somehow keep track of all that and do it right, make sure all their people are licensed to drink alcohol uh, or, or serve alcohol. They're serving it right. They have to run a business. They have to pay increasing property taxes. So there's a very, um, well, I'll tell you what it is. It's public knowledge. The white spot on, on West Broadway pays close to $600,000 in property tax each year because they're taxed on highest and best use. That's almost $1,500 a day in sales just to pay property tax. So those kinds of things are driving uh, the industry. They'll drive out the small uh, operators, which are very charming. I mean, that's where you get a lot of your, you know, your, 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 your new trends that develop. And the bigger guys can sustain it because they have the purchasing power. Both from a, you know buying the stuff that they they sell, but also being able to negotiate better leases because they're highly attractive. So that that's a big problem.
0: Um, so what you're telling me is that if you're a chain restaurant like Cactus Club, Earls, Joey's, and you've got multiple units in the Province Bridge, Columbia, Brown Social House is another example. Joseph Richards Group. If you're in an establishment in Vancouver, you have to print a, 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 a special drink price menu and drink strength menu for Vancouver as compared to the other part of the province. That's what's looming.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, you know, and I hope actually what I sort of hope it happens. This will be the greatest public relations and you're going to get involved in this too. And we'll stop that because, um, you know, at the same time, all these restaurants are paying such exorbitant, you know, licensing fees, you know, that all their patios, you know, if it's on city property, they're paying all that extra uh, fees. Business license fees, and now they're going to make them do this kind of stuff, and so that's the danger. Um, Minimum wage was was a real issue. Um, This government, uh, the last government, wanted to raise the minimum wage by uh, way of the consumer price index, so it was it was around eleven dollars, going up three or four percent. This government came in, so we're going to fifteen, and we went, uh oh, that's not good. But uh, what they did do, and I give them credit, is that they actually did stage this over. About three years, so it, it, you know it's like uh, what's happening in the United States right now. where there's so much uncertainty, things are going sideways. The stock market went crazy today, and everything else because there's no certainty. But you know that the way the government dealt with that was with some certainty. And business owners going to make those adjustments. Prices are going up. There's no question. It does hurt the business owner because labor is about thirty percent of their overall cost in an operation. Um, but at the same time, wages were naturally rising because of the labor shortage. So That actually worked out not too bad for us. Um, I think um, apart from, you know, just general ongoing things, some of the significant issues that we're trying to deal with is on uh, the liquor distribution branch. It causes problems for uh, license. They're um, a $3 billion operation that tries to operate like Costco and and, um, they operate like a corner store terms of their of their disciplines and operations. People don't get products and they can't get products to market and they they take a full advantage of the marketplace in terms of pricing. So we're paying too much. Uh, there is a review. Thank goodness. There's a review going on in this right now, which we'll see. Um, and the big issue, and we're working with, with this government on, and I think they understand it. Uh, the minister is wholesale pricing for liquor. So for those, that are listening to this that don't know this is that restaurants pay the same price as a consumer does right off the shelf. And, um, we've asked for some relief in that, you know, even if it's 10%, 8%, something to offset the rising costs of food and labor and taxes and occupancy costs that are happening on the other side. So, um, I'm about, I feel about 50% uh, confident on that one, Bert, that that'll happen. Um, the way the government sees these kinds of things, so they'll say, that's going to cost us $40 million, and which is nothing in the $3 billion operation out there. But what we think it's going to do is actually they'll make more money by doing this. If so they actually look at their systems and create some efficiencies, they'll easily absorb that $40 million. But they see it as a cost. So they'll say, well, at the expense of what healthcare and education is supposed to spend this money, they never look at it in terms of how do we create efficiencies within the retail operations of our liquor stores to easily absorb that kind of price.
0: No, I think that's a huge issue, and uh, we're all optimistic and hopeful that that will happen as a result of the review that was done. Um, the other one we hear about is licensee-to-licensee sales, where if you're a restaurant and you want to buy three bottles of right. a premium vodka, uh, rare scotch, that you can go down to a specialized uh, private liquor store like... Uh, Legacy liquor store, and yep. buy it, and not have to go through the LDB oh, lengthy, ongoing uh, process to get that three bottles, and if, you, and, and if you do order it, you might only get one bottle. Well,
1: you know, and the reality is, it's kind of like ride-sharing. Um, there's about five or six companies that operate in, in Richmond that cater to the Asian market. Their are, sales are about $20 million last year, and they're completely operating illegally. And so when the government blocks these sort of things, the market kind of moves around it anyways. The market will find its own solutions. In that particular case, um, there is a lot of activity, you know, and we've told the government this, and I don't have an opinion to say, you know, we're not supposed to do it. Um, But a lot of people have to do it because they can't get the product. But there's a lot of licensee-licensee sales that happen in the province anyways. It doesn't get reported. The the, the the government's just better off to deal with it and be open about it and and capture the people in the in the right system, versus what happened with the whiskey. Um, the, the gentleman had the whiskey place; he got everything confiscated because some disgruntled person decided to turn him in. So, and then when, as you know, having the experience you had um, when you reported that stuff, you have no. The government has to act on it.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Reminds me of an old quote. There's a wise French philosopher who and politician who once said, there go the people. I must get behind them and follow them, for I am their leader. And I find that with rideshare, that people want that. The government should get behind them and go with them because they want that. Same with this sort of thing. They want access. They want to not have a government that puts up barriers. Okay, switching gears a bit. Mm. World of cannabis. Yeah. Edibles coming on stream, licensed establishments that can sell liquor. People can now go out from a restaurant, out to the sidewalk, smoke a joint, and come back in. Uh, during their dinner, like most people do with a cigarette, uh, they can also now, after uh, later this year, be able to have an edible while they're sitting at the table. Probably illegal, but they'll have an edible. What are the implications for the restaurant industry around that? And then... Bide with that is what you referred to earlier was this uh, manual that you're putting together hmm. for restaurants on policies and procedures, uh, enforcements, compliance, and how to operate a restaurant successfully. You know, it's... Um,
1: we haven't had a lot of restaurants uh, overly concerned about cannabis, and, and this is my own thought. You might, you might disagree with me. I think we had a cannabis culture here anyways. There's nothing like, oh my god, you know, we can now go to a liquor store and buy liquor. Like, if you're if you're doing cannabis, you're, you're doing cannabis. So I don't know. Incrementally, if, if that's really expanded all that much, maybe where you're getting it from and and different things. I think uh, edibles, totally. I think edibles is having more of an impact. I think it's easier to sit at a table and have an edible if you so wish. But in our in our sector, most people go to restaurants aren't there to get high and go. Hey, let's start dancing the tables. So for us, it's a bit more civil. Uh, certainly. Uh, for those situations where um, people go outside and 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 smoke a joint and come back in, the the whole issue of liability is way higher now. And you're really good at that. With uh, and I know you've got some great materials that deals with how to recognize that, how to deal with that and stuff. But it's pretty hard with you know uh, you know judging a person's intoxication whether it's by alcohol, by drugs, by cannabis. I mean, it could be intoxication by a whole bunch of things. So all we can do is just have due dil, you know, really strong due diligence when the servers are there, you know, observing behavior and stuff. And just if you have to cut it off, you got to cut. You have to cut it off. If you have to phone a rideshare car now, which would be a lot easier than taxi, that's going to help greatly. Um, so the implications there, um, I don't know. I, I just, I think, I, I, I think if this was like uh, this was the first rodeo, and we'd never seen cannabis in this province. But this this province was pretty rooted in cannabis. It has been for years. And I don't think anybody's going, hey, this is great. Um, in fact, people I know that love cannabis haven't changed their behaviors. They're still buying from their dealers. And they don't really care about their retail stores. So um, I, I think we're going to be all right there. And I think uh, it is wise for us. So, and the, the programs you have is, is to educate and inform, though, to try to avoid.
0: Yeah, the, from my perspective, it's important for the staff to be aware of the issue. Yeah. But you are right. We've, uh, cannabis has been in the British Columbia Illegal, then became semi legal. Governments like the city of Vancouver recognized it. Um, police weren't really concerned about it. I always found it fascinating when we do the licensing of a music festival or you go to a concert at Rogers Arena or a, a, a stadium up country. Yeah. We do everything we can to prevent somebody selling wine to a minor and to stop somebody buying two glasses of wine and handing one off to a minor. And we're trying to stop intoxication. But you look over the mosh pit in front of the stage, and there's this blue haze hanging over yep. it when it was illegal. And it looks like a bunch of whales spouting uh, <laughs> because of this blue haze. And you just think, okay, we're in a licensed establishment. We're doing all this stuff to stop alcohol.
1: But over here,
0: there's all this illegal activity going on. And the RCMP who are watching the show are just standing, leaning against the wall with their arms crossed, not doing
1: anything. Yeah, well, back I remember going to Santana concert and um, there's no smoking in the arena. People smoked. There was uh, 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 cannabis was illegal. People were lighting up big time, and no one cared. My kid goes like, well, "What's going on here?" I say, it's, how, "How do you explain that?" Right. So
0: five years ago, I was at a Rod Stewart concert at Rogers Arena, and girls, uh, four women, right in front of us pulled out a joint, uh, lit it up. Okay, this is interesting.
1: Illegal, but they do it. And what are you going to do, right? The cops are going to shut down Rod Stewart, to go pull
0: out four ladies from a concert. So, yeah. So it's, uh, it's I agree, I tend to agree with you. One area where we find it fascinating is with golf courses, where on the playing surface of the golf course, where you can smoke cannabis anywhere you can smoke a cigarette. So guys and girls can be out there smoking a stogie, cigarettes, but now they can smoke cannabis. And then you've got the beverage cart running around, you've got the kiosk. And at the end of it, there's this a liability issue if something happens. And uh, so it's a bit of a, there are risk factors a little bit higher because you can actually do it in a licensed area. Well, um,
1: the gentleman, who has a, he still has a store open. I can't remember what his name is, but he's the one that's um, uh, well-known in Vancouver.
0: The cannabis stores?
1: Yeah, he's selling mushrooms now. Let's take in a whole new trend. So I've heard this is that, you know, cannabis is all right, but mushrooms are awesome. The way better experience, but they're being sold quote illegal. They're not legal, but they're being sold, and go down the street and buy them. So it's a culture we live in. So you'll probably have some more licensing and mushroom stores soon. Yeah. Now
0: I want to ask you a personal question. Yeah. I know you've got two dogs, and you used to have four dogs, three dogs, uh, but you also are president of the David Foster Foundation. How did that come about, and what does the David Foster Foundation do?
1: Uh, thanks for bringing it up. I uh, went in the wine business. I had a call once, and I, got a, I had a call, and it was um, uh, David Foster Foundation, Victoria's having an event, and they need 50 cases of wine. And um, Labatt's were doing the beer, and they didn't have a wine supplier. So I went, in my mind, David Foster, I love this guy. like I love his music. I love like, Earth, Wind, and Fire and all this stuff that he did. And um, he was at the beginning of his career, but highly influential producer. Chicago was another one. These are all my bands that I love because I was a drummer and a trumpet player, sort of. Growing up in Kelowna. Growing up in Kelowna, and when he so wasn't, when you weren't on your water skis, <laughs> yeah. So I would David Foster. So yeah. So I said we're in. So we donated the fifty cases of wine, and um, and it was absolutely fascinating. So the so year one. I was completely misdirected because I sort of thought this is a great way to go schmooze with all David's buddies and who was there. We're like, I think the first year was like Michael J. Fox, Olivia Newton-John and stuff. And we were all in the green room and it was like, this is kind of interesting. But year two, when it happened again, we donated the 50 cases of wine and I said, you know what, I don't want anything. I don't want tickets. I want, because I suddenly realized that what the the foundation is trying to do is raise money for families whose children need transplants. And it covers the non-medical costs of that procedure. And it can be, you can have a million dollars in your bank account and maybe not be able to cover it. It is brutal. Sometimes the families have to move to Edmonton. They have to keep two homes, you know, apart from all the psychological worry and, and maybe sit for six or eight months waiting for a donor. So I got involved with that. And then about year three um, or year four, I I sort of thought this is really interesting to, uh, do this event outside of Victoria and do it in Kelowna. So I phoned David. It was so, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to phone David Foster. And um, I was talking to him. it was like literally shaking. I don't know why, because he's, he's a really, really nice guy. But. Well, he's I, a legend. I know. And I'm not the legend, right? And so he goes, well, I said, David, can we, uh you think about this? And, and he goes, oh, I don't know. And then it, uh, all of a sudden it happened. He said, okay, great. So we're now going to do it in Victoria. We had Julio Glazia. The little town of Kelowna went upside down because people are writing this statement. We don't uh, take away from our bingo nights and all this confusion and what's going on in our little city here. But uh, we, we, we raised $400,000 several years ago. And then um, I was asked to join the board, which I did for, I don't know, it was like 23 years of that. And then I was the president for two years. Um, it was all volunteer work. And then we hired a CEO, which was really necessary because the foundation had grown so much that, uh, it was going across Canada and it's a full-time job. Uh, I could write a book on that whole, um, what the influence that David had in my life and the things that I did. And, um, he's really, really neat guy. He's a really talented guy. Um, he's so committed. And I lear- learned, you learn this, like he's so committed to the cause of families. And, and I mean, that'll be his legacy. He actually believes his legacy will be not the music, know, was probably the be, the best music producer in our lifetime. He wants to be known as the legacy of the David Foster Foundation. So uh, it's, that was really interesting. That was really a highlight of my life. Not my, that my life is over, but so far, thus far.
0: I, As I understand it, his start in the foundation was the fact that his mother phoned him when he was in L.A. and said that a girl from Vancouver, I think it was a girl from Victoria, was down in L.A. Yeah. in a hospital awaiting, a, I think it was a liver transplant. Mm-hmm. And and his mother said you should go out and visit her because a friend of the family. And he went to the hospital, and that's where he got caught up in this.
1: Yeah, he walked in, and his mother, uh, Miss Eleanor Foster, she was a, she was just the most. She's like Barbara Bush. Yeah, she was so awesome, and uh, she's passed. But she uh, and David's father died at an early age. So she ran David. I mean, David would get on stage, and pardon me, he'd say, like, ah, this is great. And she'd go, David, you can't swear. You can't say those kind of things. he go, like, okay, sorry, mom. I won't do it again. So she was always a guiding light for him. So she phoned him and said, uh, There's one of ours in, in LA hospital. He went there, and he said to her, He said, You know, if there's one thing that I could, I could do for you. What would that be? And she said, I want to see my sister. So he flew her little sister down, and then eventually she died. But that was the start of it. And he said, he realized that there's all these things that happen when people have unfortunate situations and get sick that we could easily help with and, and provide those magical things. So I think the foundation has helped about 500 families over, over the years. Um, it's, it's, it's over 30 years old now. Um, we've got somewhere in the midst now about $30 million the bank and headed for 50. And I don't think David's um, giving
0: up any time soon on that. It's great. Do they have any more events coming up?
1: No, they just they're doing some smaller private events. Um, the big one we had in, big, in Vancouver a couple of years ago was hard to organize and very costly. So um, he's taking small pools of people, like about a hundred people, and going somewhere. They, they went to a, a resort on Vancouver Island, and they'll walk out and they'll raise a million dollars quite simply. Be an evening with David. Yeah. Um, so um, he'll do something because he can't stop himself. He just loves that so much, and he's, he's you know it's so going to see. An evening performance, as you know, with David Foster is, is, is amazing and a surprise. I mean, I think the last one you were at, uh, Muhammad Ali was there yeah, right. in Victoria, which was uh, cool.
0: Yeah, and, uh, oh, uh, Pamela Anderson was there, plus uh, Canadian Tenors, just a phenomenal show. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, was really great. Well, Ian, listen, thanks for coming in to joining us on uh, our show today. We very much appreciate you being part of License to Chill. And I uh, hope you'll come back and keep us posted on the issues we talked about today. And if you ever need to talk about anything, give us a call. Well, Bert, and
1: I want to thank you and um and thank you for what you do at Rising Tide because um, you know you've really developed an incredible platform to to guide our industry through the very um, the complexities of licensing, which is critical. You're always a great resource for us to send people to to solve problems and now uh, in the cannabis space. So good for you for taking that on. So it's always a pleasure.
0: All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. The preceding podcast was recorded at Studio 710 in downtown Vancouver, the home of Jade Maple. For more information, follow us online at risingtideconsultants.ca.